Written in 1973 by Jean Raspail, The Camp of the Saints depicts a dystopian scenario where France and the West in general is overrun with third world immigrants. Called a stunningly racist French novel by the urban liberal click farm of record, the Huffington Post, readers without any preconceived notions of the book may ask themselves, where's the lie though? If anything, Raspail understates the extent to which Western nations, from the media to the military, collectively facilitate the influx of millions of non-native Europeans into countries like France, some going so far as to say he prophetically describes the way in which a combination of cowardice and a culture of Christian giving paved the way towards the burning of Notre Dame in 2019 and a general devolution of the quality of life in cities such as Paris as refugees crowd out native citizens for public services, living space, and even representation in their own government. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been ideal. Bonjour, welcome to the show. We are back after, yes, we did not post last week, but hopefully we can make up for that with today's episode. We're here to talk about the decline and fall of Western civilization and the rising tide of color. And we're joined by our frequently returning guest, Porzoi. Hello. It's me. Hello, Borza. How have you been? I'm good. I'm doing well. And we have with us myself, Adam and Hans. How are you, boys? Pretty good. Um, okay. I just want to say that I can hear. I mean, I, I the other guys said they didn't hear it as much. Maybe I just have my my headset souped up. But for me, hearing the cars in the background is the quintessential Nick Mason experience right now. I just imagine you're just like recording this right now off of like some lonely highway on the on the coast, as you know, the stars twinkle in the sky. Not yeah, he's actually off. on location today. Yeah, he's I'm, our in the I'm, field I'm, reporter. Uh, he, he's recording he, from from Provence right now in France. He's literally with the migrant caravan. Right yeah, now. he's actually <laughs> going through satellite, as they often will say on the uh, the CNNs. Uh, that that we we've uh, we've revealed it. We can't no longer hide it. He's he's out of the country. Well. He, yeah, I'm sitting off the side of an ocean highway, and a flood of brown corpses are washing up on the beach. That actually is lovely. Uh, probably hey, a daily hey, it's occurrence. On, it's unfortunately. on point, man. This is we bring you breaking news, and unfortunately, there is some breaking news. Uh, I'm sure by the time you're listening to this episode, you will have already have known this. But um, Adam, do you want to do you want to say some say some words about the demise, the tragic demise of uh, a guest we had on the program? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled and slightly honored or very honored to, uh, I guess, tell our audience by the time you hear this, you probably already know, but we had, um, 
the perhaps late, definitely great John McAfee on our show, uh, not once but twice, and uh, his wife, uh, Janice, who was very nice to uh, me and everybody uh, in connecting us, I just want to offer my condolences. Uh, apparently, he has died in a Spanish uh, jail cell. He was waiting extradition to the uh, heart of the empire back in America. And according to news reports, he has died of an alleged suicide. Now, there have been uh, people reporting, and this, for whatever it's worth, comes from Russia today, that he had tweeted previously that he was not uh, suicidal. Uh, so let the conspiracy theories uh, commence. Um, but when we had him on, he seemed uh, full of life, as he is often uh, in a very upbeat manner in any of his interviews. I've never actually met the man. But um, he was 75, is 75, maybe he is uh, trying to elude the authorities by making people think he died or they made a deal with him. I don't know. I mean, the possibilities are endless. I mean, the, the fact is, though, and I made a list for this uh, sort of small eulogy that Nick uh, suggested I put together. Uh, I'm going to read a list of names uh, that were also very outspoken critics of the political regime uh, in our current world uh, that met death with some very mysterious circumstances. So without further ado, I shall read a brief list of people that I would suggest anyone who believes that uh, maybe not everything is as it seems, look into these particular individuals' deaths. Uh, Danny Casolaro, William Colby, Vince Foster, Gary Webb, Seth Rich, Andrew Breitbart, Antonin Scalia, Jeffrey Epstein, and now John McAfee. Condolences to Janice again, and uh, I'll hand it back to you guys. I mean, what do you say about the man? He's uh, uh, one, a, a mutual friend of ours described him as uh, a, a, an eighth-century English earl in both appearance and uh, in manner, and uh, I, I tend to agree with that. He was a, a Renaissance man as well. He was uh, arguably a genius. Um, he lived a life of adventure, arguably a real life Indiana Jones. His whole uh, story arc in Central America was uh, nothing short of incredible. <laughs> so uh, I, you know, I was very saddened to hear that he passed. He was a very kind to us. He was a fan of our work. And, uh, he, you know, he was definitely on the level with a lot of us and uh, our listeners. So it's sad to hear that he uh he paid the ultimate price for uh, for not deigning to contribute more to the uh, to the sort of empire of death. Yeah, I'll add. You know, an enemy of the system, an enemy of the American federal government, of Zog, is a friend of mine. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much to me whether share my particular views of the situation. That's not what's important. I think that. If we had more men like John McAfee out there, we would be in a better situation. I mean, he's certainly a character, and I admire that. I don't know what to believe with all of this. I will point out that, oddly enough, the John McAfee uh, Instagram posted a just the letter Q after he died. I don't know what to make of any of this, but 
I will say my policy is to never give Zog the benefit of the doubt. So I guess that would be my perspective on this. Um, he was a he was kind of a, a super uh, a interesting the last interesting super villain in a way. But uh, yeah, he's I I will definitely miss his very bizarre but very insightful podcast appearances. I mean, when you, you forgot to add Terry Davis to that list. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Real, real. No. T- I actually, funny story. I was just walking around town the other day, and I saw a dude wearing a Temple OS ball cap. Like no shit. I, I talked to him for a second. That's I mean, actually a great point as well, though, Nick, that you bring up. I mean, this, he might be the last of the internet folk heroes. Yeah, that's that's what made me think of it. The only other one that's still around, uh, well, there's a few around, I guess, but uh, uh, you can look at someone like Linus Torvalds, who was an internet folk hero in his own right for a long time, but he kind of went the opposite route of McAfee, where instead of being uh, principal but also um, hilariously insane, he kind of just faded into the background of his own uh, his own organization. Whereas McAfee was, I think, one of the few... Uh, tech corporate tech tycoons ever to basically trash his own company <laughs> and 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 basically tell people not to use their product and uh he attempted to i think um teach people something about the real nature of cybersecurity and the real nature of the internet and uh and in the real nature of uh the global political system so you know you can live a life of adventure and you can actually take risks and you can be uh, i guess a supervillain, or you can be uh sort of a boring caricature of yourself at the end of your life i think i'd add to one final observation is that i think we've reached the point in the advance of the global system that the, the flailing beast that is the united states government uh really can get you pretty much anywhere now i mean that no longer are there really like any places you can go to to escape them if they really want you. So probably best to just, you know, make your stand where you will. That's up to you. But it's just observation. Mm, make the stand where you will. I guess that's a good transition to what we're going to talk about. Yes. So we're going to talk about a novel today. Um, it's uh, The Camp of the Saints. And I had not read this book before and neither had Borzoi. Uh, I don't know about Adam and Hans, but I put off reading it it sat on my shelf for a very long time and i don't know why i never really got around to it i suppose in a certain sense i expected that it would be kind of old news you know i mean it's a novel written in 1973 and it's not an especially radical well here were my assumptions i should say i assumed it wasn't a especially radical novel and that the world that it pictured is something that has long come to pass. And to a certain extent, that is true, but I actually really enjoyed it. And I would say it's probably the best written novel of uh, racial apocalypse I've read. I would add as well that I couldn't help, it's <laughs> first on my notes, actually. So I, my, my first, uh, first point here is... Uh, I, I couldn't help but think of uh, Jared Taylor when I was reading it because it's very eloquent, very bourgeois. It's francophone, 
uh, impassioned. And like Taylor, Raspal seems to be incapable of spelling the word Jew. <laughs> now, yeah, Jew, Jews are quite in the background of this that, novel. That being said, uh, I actually appreciated that about the book for reasons I will get into. But I actually think that by leaving the Jew absent the plot of the novel it allowed for the focus to be much more inward uh, on Christianity, on the, the nature of the libtard and the traitor. I, I think that that helps because uh, as much as we talk about Jewish power, it's hardly a monocausal thing. There's a lot going on in the decline of the West. The Jews are just the ones dumping gasoline on the fire. I mean, they're doing a lot of things, but that's that's the first metaphor that comes to mind. Uh, but... What, what did you think, Borzoi, and the rest of you? That's, that's actually, I'm glad you bring it up that way, because that was what was very striking to me. I, I Like you, Nick, I didn't read it for the longest time. Actually, I didn't read it until you suggested this episode to me, because I basically read the Wikipedia summaries. Okay, I get, I get the gist of this. And my wife was actually one of the people who insisted constantly that I that I read it, because she comes from a very Francophile family, and so she'd read the novel, and she would mention different passages to me and the like. And so finally, you know, after usage says, all right, let me pick this up and read this. And a couple of things that really stuck out to me was how well written it was. I, I had mixed feelings about it at first, but as I got along in the novels, this is, this is from a literary standpoint, a very, very well written novel, or at least whoever translated it was able to either they were just able to capture something within that because it's a very captivating novel in the in the language that's written. There's, I could I have I could have some other critiques about that, but uh, it's I, I I I like literature, so I can I can wonk on about that quite a bit. But the other thing is is that because I noticed as well that that Jews weren't really mentioned. Israel's kind of incorporated into this world that that's also being overwhelmed despite the fact. That you know that we we can now see with actual evidence that they aided and abetted in the migrant caravans that uh, came into Europe in the last decade, but Jean Raspail I learned, which wasn't surprising, came is basically a very traditionalist Catholic type person. So, and he he embodies that that French notion that they're the they're the harbingers and defenders of civilization, especially Western civilization which is also christianity and that sentiment comes out quite a bit in the book but what i what i found striking is because i'm, I'm maybe i'm just so used to reading a lot of different reactionary things there were parts of it that didn't seem as reactionary as i would have thought and that might be because of the apocalyptic tone of it maybe the the defeatist tone the defeatist ending of it is a little bit reactionary as well but there's something very radical especially about the characters who you know make their last futile stand on on that be uh, in southern france and there was something about that really stuck with me i, I would definitely want to get into that with you guys just it, there's something almost radical about it well and the gates of hell absolutely prevailed against it i mean for fuck's sake he kills the pope spoiler 
I mean, we can get into the end. The end is definitely one of the best oh, parts of the book. And 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 the prescience of it is actually that's you you can get the sense you can get it from the Wikipedia summary as well. But I mean, you have a Pope Ben. I mean, he was he was so he's close. a Latin American Pope, Pope, Pope just, Benedict XVI in the novel is a Latin American who's yeah. pro refugee. And you also at the end the. Uh, the queen of the queen of England is pressured to have her son. Yes, yes, uh, I have Mary, that on my list Mary too. Pakistani. Yeah. We are jumping ahead of ourselves a little okay. bit, but uh, since you brought it up, I will say that. I mean, it's easy in retrospect, but he could have, if he if he put a little more effort in, I think he would have been able to guess that the the last pope would be named Francis. But I digress. For a novel written in 1973, I mean, it is it, it has not. There's a lot of stuff that can that ages poorly, especially because of the very technological society we live in now. He, this, this, that was the most striking thing is how readable this is for a novel from 1973. Yeah, he, well, he's very conservative with his predictions, as in he doesn't, he doesn't really focus on too much outside of the main plot, uh, and he doesn't make the cardinal sin of racialist fiction and include laser beams or any other Deus Ex Machina MacGuffin. <laughs> So he has that going for him. He's already leagues ahead, actually, by by avoiding laser beams, uh, Jew space lasers or whatever, or Aryan like moon landing or dark side of the moon Aryans returning with like laser technology or whatever. Dumb shit. People. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, well, the other guys, uh... but yeah, let's let's let this let's let the boys weigh in. I mean, I, I can be very brief. I was uh, I was listening to this because these days I've uh, tried to get offline as much as I can to get in the real world more so. Uh, hopefully that comes through with uh, some useful perspective when we're tree, nigga. discussing uh, these books. But yeah, I was uh, I was putting a roof on a house and uh, I had this on my uh, iPod. And uh, I was just like listening to all these, you know, sob stories about brown people and the ill-trodden. And I'm literally hanging by my toes and fingernails from imminent death. Dangerous, dangerous. And I'm, I'm thinking of my white privilege as I'm listening to this. But the, um, <clears throat> and it was, I don't know, 95 degrees and just the, the tar was melting. It was pretty, pretty bad. But uh, anyway, I, I do that sort of thing because uh, I don't want to hire a Mexican to do it. I'll just be honest. And uh, I take some pride in that. And in any case, uh, I got about 25% of the way through the, uh, um, computer version of the uh, the book that I turn into a an audiobook so I can listen to it while I, d- I do actual stuff and from what I gathered um it's pretty spot on this book it 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 foretells a a scenario that seems to have been happening ever since uh well I don't know when when France France got uh, its inundation of North Africans in particular obviously they had colonies there for a long time and they started bringing them over, I think during maybe World War One, but the massive waves probably were after World War Two, just like in Britain. Uh, and then just the, the, the slow Muslim of, and Islamification of the country has uh, seemingly taken hold over the past 15 years, especially with all the church burnings. Uh, but the book kind of profiles some of this. Uh, two things that I thought were sort of interesting and maybe uh, lessons, teachable lessons and takeaways were um, the third world attitude towards the so-called first world 
in that there's this supposed worldwide refugee crisis and countries like India are basically saying, you know, we, we don't owe you people anything. It's your problem. You deal with it. Um, I kind of have seen a lot of that, uh, uh, not overt language, but maybe implicit language coming from uh, China and India when it comes to uh, global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it, uh, and then more explicit language like like that from places like uh, like Africa, where they're not too uh, too strong on subtlety or nuance. Um, and then the other thing was uh, they got into how the media behaves. Uh, in America, we call these people kind of a uh, like limousine liberals, you know, they, they sort of enjoy all the trappings of the so-called, uh, upper classes, but in public or on television, they, they speak of socialism or ways to oppress the, uh, upper classes and give, give the wealth to the, uh, the racial, uh, other, um, but in their private lives, they, they live, uh, very differently. So there's some hypocrisy there. Uh, I think also in the media angle, from what I remember, they were talking about how uh, some of the magnates that own these companies have a, have a particular narrative that they want to push. And then the people who are in the newsrooms either toe the line or they're, they're fired. And so I think that's, that's also very accurate. Um, it's about as far as I got through the book, though. And, and I kind of imagined that it would basically play out like how our real world has played out. So... Uh, I'm curious to learn how uh, how close or different that was from you other guys. It's probably the best novel ever written on the libtard, definitely. Yeah, I have a lot to say on that. Hans, would you like to add anything before we move along here? There's two, uh, I guess they're entries or chapters, uh, 28 and 29, um, and they're about midway through the book. Uh, they are incredible in that they almost completely accurately describe the beginning of the 2014 and 15 migrant attack on Spain. Um, it is, it is, it's remarkable, especially if you were paying attention to what was going on at that time. Uh, and I read this book, uh, for the, uh, originally in 2016, um, so it was fresh. I had I haven't read it since, but these these two chapters in particular uh, were are kind of haunting because they are, are they're so they feel real, uh, and they feel real in terms of how they um, they capture this energy of people fleeing in caravans uh, into the, the into the hinterlands into the countryside away from the coastal cities, which is a, a phenomena you see now, not just due to the migrant crisis, but uh, in Europe, as the, the cities are continuously and lock, you know, locked down over and over again, there's this massive flow out of the cities into the countryside to get away uh, in time to meet the lockdown requirements. Um, uh, and there's a passage here. Uh, bishops proclaim their messages of charity, and the ruling leftist cliques droned on in the name of universal harmony and brotherly love. But even as the Spanish government spoke of peace and calm, the highways out of every city along the Mediterranean, Malaga, Almeria, Cartagena, Alicante, Valencia, all the way to Barcelona, were jammed with cars packed with baggage and children. Two streams, in fact, were cutting across Spain in opposite directions. 
one a river of words rolling down to the sea in the Ganges fleet beyond, the other a river of life flowing inland away from the coast. On Good Friday evening, the second stream dwindled and died. The fleet had gone by and kept its distance. It was then that the stream of words swelled into a gushing torrent, one that wouldn't subside until Easter Monday, when clearly it was France that was going to be invaded. Um, and there's something remarkable about that, too, is that it, there's, a, there's a recognition that uh, these Mediterranean countries were going to be hit first, but they were not the primary target. The primary target, as we saw in the migrant crisis uh, at its peak, was northern and central Europe. And the, uh, the beginning invasion that would attack Spain and Italy uh, and Sardinia and Greece and to an extent uh, the Balkan coastline, uh, that was mostly intended as a way of, of finding an avenue into France, into Germany, and into England uh, and Scandinavia as well. Um, and so, you know, Respile captures this in 1973, and it's just, it's completely remarkable. 40 years, 41 years uh, ahead of exactly what ended up happening. Um, I think that the only thing that he he didn't, get right was he underestimated the number of people that was all he, he underestimated i think uh and I, well I, yeah it he underestimated i guess maybe mm, because the thing is the subtext in the novel is that like once because the initial uh flotilla is like a million people i mean they, they're dumping bodies left and right on the way but uh, once that arrives then it's the signal goes out the world over and then the, the flood will just be a deluge and you see some of that as well with the uh with what's going on in britain all that there's a lot of side references of what's going on in america and britain and other countries and the chinese uh basically getting ready to go into the soviet union but but to your point hans uh what is interesting about that is that in this hell world that we currently live in the idea of a million people is now almost passe well, it's, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's an underestimation. The, the real number of people who made their way into Europe during the primary uh, migrant crisis period, which really started in late 2013 uh, through most of 2015, um, it definitely numbered in the several million, if not more. We actually don't know uh, the, the total number. Uh, you know, European governments have done everything in their power to lie mostly to their own population about what and really to themselves yeah, yeah that's, that's themselves. one thing he gets really right is the extent to which basically how the european states respond it right. is very spot on and he uh, would know that as well being a frenchman because the french have always been very particular about them not of not being allowed to post what the actual demographics are to this day nobody really knows what the demographic situation in france is because you can't post those numbers. There's us. There's estimations. There's guesses. There's some notion based off of religion. You can kind well, of figure it out. One of the you cannot they, post it. One of the things I remember that um, certain French demographers were attempting to use to gauge that number was, uh, like the French do publish, I guess, reports on the number of illnesses that are diagnosed or something like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of public health data, and they were able to infer from rising rates of sickle cell the a general population growth model of African migrants within France. 
and of course it's it's exploded at you know not a quite exponential rate but something close to it it's you know it's in the millions now and they they were able to kind of reverse engineer by doing a a population sample size with number of of diagnosed cases of sickle cell which is a, a disease even, that, that almost only affects uh, West Africans. Even the, I, I believe, unnamed president of the Republic of France bears a lot of eerie similarities to Macron. Uh, we can do. Yeah. We could get deep into this now, or I actually have a few more general points I wanted to make. So, uh, one thing to be understood is that uh, he he was a well-traveled man and it really shows because you know racial consciousness gained through lived experience and actually traveling the world uh, tends to be able to have a better a better real picture of the world than i don't know the knee-jerk racism of daryl not that there's anything wrong with that i mean daryl obviously has some healthy instincts but he's not a thinker uh, and he's certainly not a man of much worldly experience. Uh, so that really, that's a benefit that it has. Uh, and I would also add, there's a lot to this. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's almost trite to say at this point that like a book is prophetic, but I mean, it just, you can't really understate it. It's really incredible actually, uh, considering it was written in 1973. We recently did a show on the novel, uh, the Turner Diaries, William Luther Pierce. And there's a lot of comparisons that can be made to that. Uh, I do think this is a better written novel. I mean, that's one of the obvious criticisms of Pierce. He wasn't really, wasn't a great novelist. And it's more polemical. Uh, Spile doesn't really seem to be, uh, it, it's really not an ideological novel by any means. I mean, he clearly has sympathies with a, maybe the traditional right. Uh, those are the characters who are given the most flattering treatment, no doubt. Uh, but the novel, despite being so grounded in reality and in a reality that hadn't yet come to pass but has since come to pass, uh, it's also a very allegorical novel. It, the characters are playing sort of types, in a sense, and there's a lot of there's a lot of really it never it never is too on the nose, but there's a lot of you know really clear symbolism as far as you know the the council who's you know the first one to die at the hands of the the brown mob at the beginning of the book but most importantly at the the end of the novel uh where they take basically a stand and the, the sort of the the elements of his idea of of white french civilization uh they all have like their role the the few men left the you know, initially a dozen and then a few more added on to that. And it takes place, their stand takes place in what I imagined to, to him was sort of the idyllic representation of the greatness of France. It was a, you know, a chateau or whatever, um, very aristocratic old money. It was built and it opens there as well. And it was, you know, something that was built 500 some years ago, lived in over generations and, it's a very French ending, actually, considering, you know, they're whining and dining and it's charming and tragic. Um, that was perhaps my favorite part of the, of the book was the end. And I will also commend him for having the balls to do the tragic ending. Um, he did say that he had toyed with the idea of maybe an optimistic ending. But if you compare it to American uh, 
novels of racial apocalypse. Uh, they're much more, uh, you know, agitprop, I guess you'd say. And yeah, there's always like a deus ex machina that comes in. The miracle happens. I yeah, think that's very endemic well, to American thinking. They tend to be tied to whatever the particular author's uh, political projects are. Um, and they're always, ironically, they're always really, even if they have a lot of bleak parts to them, they have good endings. They have happy endings. Imagine if Orson Scott Card wrote Camp of the Saints. The guy wrote Ender's Game, where there's like a like a miracle moment, kind of like. I never read Ender's Game. Okay, well, it's 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 basically in that vein. It's, My mom did. Like a, he's like a Mormon, but it, there's a, there's an element to even uh, more hardcore American science fiction or, or just speculative fiction, where there's normally a moment where there's some big uh, change, or there's even like. Um, sort of the standard three-act story structure. I will say that one of the things, if Camp, uh, I know it's in reading Camp of the Saints, there, it's not a three-act story structure, really. It's just sort of, it starts and it just gets progressively worse. It's it's like, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. It's like uh, reading. It's an anti-epic. Yeah, it, it's basically just a pure statement of facts, um, almost like you're basically, I mean, it, book is basically written as if it was a, a diary or a journal, but um, it, it feels like you're reading uh, a, hit, a history, like you're reading a history book that with no clear narrative or no clear bias. It's just sort of recounting a statement of events. Uh, there, there's one thing that, that he brings up, which is, I think, also very interesting that he sort of uh, foresaw this in the 70s, that there would be no mobilization of the military to fight back. You know, this would not be like f the French of the medieval era or even the 19th century or even the early 20th century that would, you know, fight back and assemble their army at the at the uh, the peril of being invaded or having to fight. Uh, and he, he notes this one passage, um, uh, only Monsieur Jules Machifère editor-in-chief of La Pensée Nationale, has in fact come forward with a serious suggestion, I quote, unless the government orders the army to take all possible steps to prevent this landing. It's the duty of every citizen with any feeling for his culture, his race, his religion, and traditions not to think twice, but to take up arms. Even Paris, our own beloved Paris, has already been besieged by the henchmen of the invader. My offices have been ransacked by bands of mindless thunks, among them the vilest dregs of the capital's foreign population. My newsboys have been harassed day in, day out through the streets by groups of extremists without the police even lifting a finger and before the very eyes of an unconcerned public. Under such conditions, I have no choice but to suspend publication of La Pensée Nationale until better days, but I'm not going to give up the fight. So there, yeah, he, kind of, he predicts that basically in the something horrible has happened throughout, you know, the course of the 20th century and early 21st century. And that the, the great European armies of old, uh, don't exist anymore. They had evaporated. And if they I, exist, I, I would they qualify that only... as their leaders, which, uh, in, I'm assuming mm -hmm. in France is similar to, and America is a civilian led army. And if the 
Presidente, President, uh, Premier, whatever the hell they have, uh, Chancellor, and I think that's a president actually in France, whatever they have um, going on domestically, they're going to try to play to that more so than the military's perhaps instincts. And they're ultimately going to command them to do what they want. And I think that's why you haven't really seen much of anything. Uh, that's and, not what happens in the book, though. So okay. the, the thing in the book is that it's actually the enlisted men that they can't get to pull triggers. And it's not just it's not just France. It's the world over. Um, everyone's waiting. It's kind of like how now everyone's hoping that like meme countries like Hungary are going to like pull the triggers for them, and give them permission, you know. It's a similar thing, like because when nobody knows where it's going to go, like the only people who show any balls are the Egyptians, who are willing to shoot. Uh, and this, keep in mind, this takes place in a time in which South Africa still existed, and Australia had a white Australia policy, and he predicts the demise of both of those, correctly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, well, he he basically predicts what happened to South Africa effectively, which was that it was overrun by. Yep. Uh, Bantu immigrants who, you know, came in in overwhelming numbers, overwhelmed the ability of the South African government to kind of hold them back. And eventually apartheid just became untenable, mostly as a factor of scale. You know, the Bantu population of South Africa had uh, imploded where there had not been 300 years prior. So they just it couldn't couldn't work any longer. He, and he kind of he just basically lays it out that it's a numbers game, and that at some point the the African, even even as South Africa was already a pariah state at the time, wasn't getting a lot of help from anyone. It was just inevitable that it was going to be part of this global assault because as the as Europe kind of fell, there would be no one left in Europe to really even suggest lending a hand to South Africa and it was inevitable that the the sort of Bantu horde would make their way in. Does he talk about Rhodesia? Yeah, they have the will to do what's Yeah, Rhodesia died already. Um that's, okay. that's actually one of the the we don't really know the details, but he refers to it as the like the first or the I think I know he refers yeah. to it as like the second great tombstone of the white man on the dark continent. Cuz cuz they're they're uh uh, what is he? Prime Minister uh, Ian Smith. He he did seemingly lead an opposition against the uh, the blacks taking over, um, and that yeah, was very it's, exceptional. It's it's not made clear, and there's a few things because you know you can always say, "Hey, go read the book," um, which I recommend. It's was really a fantastic book, uh, but you know there's always people who have either maybe they read it in the past and they don't remember all the details or they're just not going to read it. Uh, so to Adam's point earlier, there's a part in the book where they basically run this war game to see if you can get people, if you can get the Navy to pull triggers on these motherfuckers. And uh, they lead it all the way up to the point where like, you know, you're readying the, you're readying the heavy guns and they basically all mutiny. Uh, and so they know like, and talking through the, to the brass and stuff this is like the general consensus and by the end like they have like the most hardcore of their military men who's i guess symbolic of the old of the old france uh he ends up with you know uh like 11 guys <laughs> one of which yep. is like the 
you know, the, the hard, hard line, the one hard line guy in the government. And also the, uh, Hans is reading a quote about the paper that was being attacked. Um, one of the others, there was a radio man too, who was like the right wing radio man. They finally had on because what you have happening, like the dynamic, he, one of the good things is, uh, he, how he identifies the right too. And while there's, yes. there's sympathy, uh, it shows you a dynamic that is very much real. And that's that basically there's people, all the, the cowards in positions of power. There's a lot of people who have kind of, you know, and people hang their hat on this all the time. I get sick of it. I don't engage, but you know, he's, you know people are always wanting to assume the motivations of so-and-so. Interestingly, I know this was happening about Macron recently. Uh, there were people like based Macron posting. Uh, I didn't know, remember exactly what the details of the issue were, and I don't need to because it's it's written here in this novel, actually, where it's I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's obvious to anybody what's going on. And if you have any sympathy, it's so you have what it's going on in the novel is their their Macron basically is secretly like funding the right wing opposition paper. Yep. Uh, and it's just like hoping that somehow th this can make what they would really like to do an easy decision for them. And obviously, if they're unwilling to make a difficult decision, uh, to Adam's point, they're clearly not leaders. I have the quote pulled up as well, because prior to that, Mashafer, since we, we he's been brought up, he reveal, he basically just talks about how he is controlled opposition because he's his little paper. He's known as like the only voice that's willing to speak out against this. But his little paper is within the offices of a much bigger paper and they're reliant upon the bigger left wing paper in order to do all their printing and all that. And he always gets drunk and just pisses on their mat. And eventually the editor of that paper is getting sick of it. And I, I have it right here. Now, look here. You know, you have no lease, no press. I could throw you out tonight if I wanted. Sometimes I wonder why I haven't already. And Mashafer, his mind much steadier than his legs, jibed back. Well, I'll tell you why, old chum. It's because thanks to freedom of the press, you can print any trash you want and poison the heads of a million damn fools. It's because thanks to freedom of the press, you can go your merry way, sapping the strength of the, of the nation, quietly tearing it down brick by brick behind your convenient satirical mask. Well, the fact is, old friend, the people aren't all blind just yet, no matter how low they've sunk. To get them to swallow what you feed them, you need something vaguely resembling an opposition. For the moment, as long as you and your kind haven't won hands down, you can't let me go. I'm your excuse. Without me and a handful of other survivors, not much better off, poof. No more difference of opinion, no more freedom of the press. When the time comes, you won't think twice, but you still have a while to wait. Why, I bet you a case of Mulan event. The best there is that if I decided to fold up today and stick the keys under your door, you'd buy up my paper on the sly and keep it running yourself just to make sure you had something to sneer at. It wouldn't be the first time to hold the, the line against fascism or some bullshit like that. You've got to be sure there are still a few good pseudo fascists handy. You have no kick. As demagogues go, you couldn't do better. I'm a pretty good buy. Efficient, convincing, cheap. And I save you doing the job yourself. That's the price I pay for my innocent little whim. So leave me alone and let me piss on your mat in peace. You know damn well when the time comes, you won't have to make a move to shut me down, except maybe walk up the three flights to tell me. Boom. Yeah, and by the way, that paper, the, it's basically Charlie Hebdo, the yep. satirical paper. Yeah. It's, it's really pretty incredible. Uh, but yeah, the dynamics of Paul, like, it doesn't get too far into 
party politics outside of just the absolute top of the government and the press. And of course, there are no Jews in the press. The one who's performing the Jew role is a spiteful North African mulatto. Um, well, there's also Bor- you also have Boris Vilsberg, which he's not explicitly named to be Jewish, but I mean the, that's kind of the influence. Yeah. He's kind of like the dour defeatist of yeah, one yeah. of the of the media. That's true. Um, and you have, I mean, that him the uh, the main like firebrand advocating for, uh, you know, who's the, the main the, in the in the form of the written word, the main one who's. Yeah, Dio. Yeah, I mean, his Eurasian wife ends up gang raped to death, uh, and he meets. Uh, what, what was his fate? He gets uh, murdered on the beach. He's the he's the he's referred to as the one actual murderer on the. Oh beach. yeah, he's killed by the um, by the nightmare horror from Beyond the Void. Yeah, uh, yeah. I should add that, like the yeah, the turd eater and his and his dwarf. Uh, that's that's actually really good stuff. That's like some straight. Com- Cosmic horror shit. Uh, it, it's it's almost like a yeah some kind of transcendent evil. Um, That's one know, the aspect. Speak, oh, yeah, it doesn't I mean, need to give aspects. like explicit directions. Really, every now and then it it says something, but all they all they all worship it because it's of course like the king of shit. Yeah. Well, that's a great contrast as well between that with that meeting because you have the the external explicit. Like very other world, almost otherworldly alien racial threat that is the turd eater and his and his dwarf, and he's meeting the one. Like you have to remember, like we're going you know, going Lovecraftian on this. That was the point of Shadow over Innsmouth. That this is the nefarious effect, you know, effects of miscegenation and Clement Dio uh, is is that like he is this weird mystery meat. Who his exact genealogy and exact heritage is unknown. He's got some North African ancestry. God only knows what that is. That some possible sub-Saharan African ancestry, some European ancestry. He's he is the the story of the of the insidious and tragic mulatto who, because he can never be part of the society he's been allowed to live in, seeks to take his revenge. Not upon not just that. allowed to live in, but allowed to prosper in. Yeah. And that's what his undoing is, is he's living this bourgeois life, driving a red sports car with a, you know, I don't know, eight out of 10 Eurasian. And they kill him for it. I mean, well, they rape his wife for it. Uh, and then he he's killed otherwise. But that's the point. And that's there is the I mean, pretty much everyone gets some form of poetic justice. That's uh, maybe the most contrived aspect of the novel. But it serves to illustrate a point, which is that these parasites who live off of contempt from white civilization, uh, when they finally undo it, their place is no longer secure in it. Uh, you also have the very comical inverse of that in the form of like, because Respile also predicted the Proud Boys uh, in the form of uh, Mr. Hamadura. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who's, who's an Indian who's, who's avowed to defend uh, specifically a Western civilization. Yeah, that's a that's a very French thing as well, though. That's that's the one thing that well, if people don't have familiarity with with French culture, that's the, uh, the it's because of the French Revolution. It's one of the most civic nationalist countries in Europe. Yeah, yeah there's like a big Algerian. It's like when they stationed presence. a bunch of niggers on the Rhine after the first war. 
There's well, a big I mean, Algerian was- like uh, apologia even amongst the French right to this day due to uh, you know the post World War II uh, struggle in Algeria. There were there were Algerians that did you know were pro French government, and when the when the state collapsed, yeah. they they did come back to come back to France and settle, and they were uh, you know kind of embraced as uh, as as Frenchmen for for struggling for the empire. Um, so yeah. th- that element is very French, but it, it is funny that there's this like hyper racist Indian who hates the other like darker Indians and is uh, is going to like defend France for whatever, <laughs> like they, because it, it's nicer than where he came from. That sort of boils it down. Yeah, and, yeah the, the that, that is, like, pretty funny. It, it's um, he. Uh, he calls into the radio station and he says uh, he managed to, to get through, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh's call screener. And he says, I remember it perfectly. Word for word. Oh, this is him recounting it at the end of the novel. Okay. So he says, you don't know my people. I told those buffoons, the squalor, the superstitions, the fatalistic sloth that they wallowed in for generations. You don't know what you're in for. If that fleet of brute ever lands in your lap, everything will change in this country of yours. My country now too. They'll swallow you up. Then they cut me off. Then uh, I wasn't even through. He doesn't recount this part, but they uh, he calls back and uh, he says, like they say something like, "You must be one of those. Uh, you must be one of those high caste Indians." And he's like, "No, I'm as dark as a nicker." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then he says, uh, to this point, he says, "What I wanted to tell them was that, to my way of thinking, being white isn't really a question of color. It's a whole mental outlook." Every white supremacist cause, no matter where or when, has had blacks on its side. And they didn't mind fighting for the enemy either. Today, with so many whites turning black, why can't a few darkies decide to be white like me? I decided, and here I am. It's funny. It's a funny note, because that's, like, at the end, you have this cast of characters uh, who are going to be wiped out, of course, uh, by by the new regime. Uh, and you have, I think, sort of a representation of everything that the author sort of saw as like the last remnants of, of France. Uh, you have the old very... professor and you have the uh, the Marine captain and the, the sort of colonial era, era colonel, the actual hardliner from the government, the newspaper man. They all show up and they uh, they start do, trying to commit as many war crimes as they can before they get taken out. So that's that's good. They even rack up a tally. There's something very uh, peculiar about how the the horde he keeps referring to it is described, and it's not um, it's not like any other invasion uh, story you've ever read throughout military history. It's sort of like like Nick said, it's anti-epic. It's also very anti-military history. There's no clear invasion tactic it's not describing some complex battle maneuvers they're not using some sophisticated weaponry there's nothing really there it's just sort of this uh almost drawing its strength from how horrifying it is and just sort of paralyzing people and and he plays off of that too he has like the uh so what the right-wing paper will do because he knows that as soon as he goes hard, they're going to just shut him down. Uh, so all he does is like post like mil- like uh, 1940s style maps where you can put in little flags to track the progress of the of the invasion. So it, it is like 
that's that's a conscious thing. That's a conscious and, thematic and, and thing. It's a, and it also shows what one of his the larger points he's he's making with this is this is where the 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 them being kind of like some of this Lovecraftian type horde that seems like it's mindless but then they do show awareness when they attack some of the whites that do get on board and all that but it's it it shows that military tactics don't matter anymore when it's a war of the soul and and a general and a foundational idea of who and what you are and if you lose that and you have no will to fight then whatever comes whatever force just decides to show up wins by default yeah and his descriptions of them are like alternately like the beast uh the the children he describes with like the most uh contempt actually it's i think kind of fascinating and how he also describes the sort of social ecology of these creatures as elevating the most deformed among them like the the most wretched of the children of the the ones who were misshapen and are given this like exalted position which uh is reciprocated of course by the christians in the novel which is a probably the really the heart of the novel honestly it's clearly written by a catholic and i mean it starts with them and it it ends with them uh more or less Yeah, so it's got one of the Frenchest chapters I've I've ever read, where it's describing the uh, the missionary that's uh, still the, the the only white person on the ship that survives until the they reach landfall. The uh, I forget if he was a bishop or whatever his his role was, the one that made it the whole way through, and is basically in a starved state, being jerked off by a bunch of the older women uh, in various yeah, succession throughout the entire journey. He's in the the permanent orgy state. Yeah. Yeah. Maria is like this is the most French chapter of the entire book. Well, there's yeah, something very odd. There's something very odd too in that he almost predicts that the the religions, the various faiths, just sort of merge together. Uh, the distinctions between the faiths of the world become less and less apparent, and they all just sort of begin to um, say the same things, act the same way, and they're you know, sort of cross-pollinated to the point of being uh, distinctions without differences. Uh, and they, like there's the, you know, the French president is meeting with like, I have my meeting with the, the the council of religions or whatever. And it's like every religion is is represented in some, you know, sort of conglomerate way. And it, and it you know, the it gets across that it's very stale. The, the only one that seems to have any character uh, and seems to be interesting or ironically the Muslims that he meets with who clearly have some sense of the impending doom or at least know something is up. But everyone else is sort of blended together into just sort of general religiosity. It's like if every religion became Unitarian Universalists at the same time. It's, it, it's, it's a very good prediction because it's effectively what's happened in the 40 years, almost 50 years since he wrote the novel. Uh, you know, the distinction and, and differences between these uh, religions has sort of um, faded away. I think that the Pope himself, he recently rent, went to um, the lost city of, of Ur, and he sat on top of a ziggurat in, in the Middle East and did a multi-faith ceremony, uh, which was quite possibly one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen a Catholic Pope do. Um, 
but it definitely, it, it definitely kind of, uh, it, it feels as though he, he saw that not only would the the political or, or realistic outlook of these religions sort of become meaningless, but the, the character of the people that inhabited the religions as they all just sort of, uh, became a mesh with each other and faded away, the character of the religions would fade away and they wouldn't matter. And you're just sort of negotiating with the religious lobby or something to that effect. Well, yeah, I mean, you he identifies... Well... Go ahead, Nick. Okay, well, he... One of my favorite bits uh, was he identifies the, the neo-Christian radical youth very well. Yeah, uh, the the sort of assorted, uh, uh, what you, crabs infected like dope heads or whatever, who are who make sort of a pseudo militia out of the remnants of the defected elements of the army, which is actually pretty much all of the army. Uh, and there's a part where they're basically doing these like litanies, and the what's left of the the colonel who's left, he observes like. That they he is commenting on their piousness, and he says that uh, they sound like old men and old women at twenty. I mean, we're like that's I think pretty on the money when you start when you look at what we're dealing with now as far as the evangelists of the you know neo Christian BLM type stuff. And you also have the aspect with the humorless, with utterly the... humorless, as the what he is, describes to them. Yeah, and you also have the aspect of where many of the uh, many of these religious uh, religious figures within the church still don't even have any genuine faith, and there's a lot of you know th- to a point where in their final procession they're just making up the names of saints that don't exist. Yes, but I will say he does one thing that that came through is in the end the real believers in all this bullshit are still Christians. Uh, all the other, all the just kind of humanist platitude libtards, like the guy that is initially assigned to be the spokesperson for the government when the crisis happens, uh, he ends up blowing his head off. Uh, and, he had, and then even the atheist, the atheist uh, philosopher who is clearly a Christian apostate of some kind, I mean, he's quoting, constantly quoting the, uh, the Bible in the beginning, uh, he's you know, killed when they first start loading Balin is his name. He's killed when they first start loading things. And he has like his, his come, come home white man moment upon his death. Uh, pretty much everyone who's actually white and isn't motivated entirely by religion, uh, has an epiphany at some point. Obviously it's always too late, but they, they all kind of realize that they went too far with this. And now they're, they're paying for it. I mean, the guy, one of the, the radio men, uh, he basically goes into a breakdown once he realizes that they're headed for France, and that's where his like planned retirement estate was going to be in Provence. Yeah, he flees, <laughs> but he's uh, stabbed to death, I believe. Yeah, I believe. I, I recall he made, he he reaches an ugly end before he makes it to Switzerland. Or oh yeah, he does it. Yeah, he, he flees. He, yeah, and his wife, uh, his uh, mulatto wife or whatever, is turned into a sex slave, and he's yeah, stabbed to death. There's uh, the, and that's what makes this such a fascinating novel to me because there is this meditation of the soul, and there, there. While at times this novel is allegorical, you can tell that Raspail is trying to 
get at something is like at at what what to do in a in a situation as degraded as this. He's got this incredible insight into the cowardice that was overtaking the country. He's, there's a passage here. This is the other passage that stuck out to me that I made sure to write down. This is towards the end of the novel. To this day, in the dull, drab, egalitarian mass, impoverished and mindless, one still sees occasional flotsam of the sort, relics of the past, oblivious to the new order and untouched by it. Like political prisons after any revolution, their ranks number many of the former leading lights, businessmen, generals, prefects, writers, and a smattering, too, of the everyday people that the privileged classes, aristocrats, first, and bourgeois in time, have always dragged along to disaster on their coattails, in part to flatter their own need for retainers, and in part because a few poor wretches will forever yearn to stand out and be different. But the new order needs no political prisons. The brainwashing will last for a hundred years, a thousand. The powers that be put up with these rare exceptions and treat them rather like harmless tramps. No danger. They have no convictions. The worst they do is to stand in some minds for a kind of vaguely conceived resistance. They don't reproduce. They don't band together. And as soon as they find themselves more than four or five gathered outside in the steps of a church or under the plane trees of some village square, they steal away without a word as if by some tacit agreement, avoiding the slightest temptation to indulge in communal existence. Since all of them are filthy and more miserable than the rest, and since all of them are white, they serve to, to make the great mulatto mix, the universal mongolization, seem all the more desirable, not to mention the spirit of sacred solidarity that they steadfastly ignore. One look at them, and everyone can judge for himself. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. Well, the best lack all conviction the worst are full of passionate intensity i mean the the main thing i think we could really talk about is i mean i, I think we covered the main plot points of the novel uh, i'm trying to think if there's anything else i mean they may come up as we discuss this but i think that it really is a as borzoi said it's one of the probably the most powerful indictments of the libtard. And we can talk about that for a little bit. Uh, one thing that stuck out at me is the libtard and its relationship to ugliness. Now, I think some people would be forgiven for thinking that they just have an inverted view of the world that we do. But if you follow the facts, that's really not the case. They know what the difference between beauty and ugliness is. And that's how how they know what to side with. He makes a really good, with the, the Lovecraftian racial horror that's watching on the shores of France, he makes, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. He makes it disgusting. I mean, it's a smell of feces and death for miles, right? I mean, and everyone is grotesque and taking place in some, like, you know, nonstop shit-covered orgy, essentially. And their leader is... is a is a corporophagiac, which you know, I'm going to hold my French joke. Um, is is a corporophagiac that has this deformed dwarf, which I couldn't help. I mean, speaking of both corporophagia, unfortunately, I have to say the sentence. Speaking of both corporophagia and uh, disgusting dwarves, I was unfortunately reminded of the film The Holy Mountain. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I can't say I recommended it, but it it's <laughs> not a Yudorowsky fan. Yeah, no, but uh, I couldn't help but think of it. Um, the the dwarf in particular, 
uh, that he carries on his back is this, it is like a symbol of evil actually in the, in the movie. Um, but the movie plays with symbols in ways that are basically incoherent. Uh, that being said, my point that I was getting at was the ugliness to the libtard. Like they know it when they see it. And it even shows their responses to it. Like when the, when the, uh, the neo-Christian mob, uh, you know, dressed in the, the counterculture shit of the day, like old USGI uniform is their leader. Uh, when they encounter the mob there, some of them are repelled by the stench, like only the most devout among them are able to sort of rationalize the, the actual grotesque horror that's in front of them. Because like, there's no way, you know, a rotting corpse is a rotting corpse. You know, it's never a beautiful sight and ugliness. I mean, they know what it is. They just, they think that they can use it to destroy what is good. Meanwhile, like they themselves live in nice white neighborhoods. I know it's a, it's a tired point, but you have to remember like these people do know one from the other. They're just motivated by a essentially religious idea. I mean, they're not, most of them don't go full Franciscan and they don't go live amongst the filth. I mean, they're not, they haven't quite ascended to that level of true belief. And they're, they tend to be hypocrites still. And he, he points out the hypocrisy very well. Because once it comes to their neighborhood, they run for the hills. Borzai, would you like to talk about ugliness and the libtard? <laughs> yeah, it's, we always debate constantly, I guess, to what extent they they're aware of their hypocrisy. I've, I've heard my friends before talk about, and so it's on them coming from liberal families themselves, like that, especially when it comes to the race issue. Oh, they, they know. And then it's just, it's like a prestige thing. And there are people who disagree with that and say, no, no, it's, they, they it really is just a, a real, a bizarre religious belief that they have a cognitive dissonance uh, about, or they're just that oblivious to what, what they're actually doing. I, I'm not exactly sure what what drives them, but there is this weird, in my experience with them, there's this weird reveling in the ugliness of things and in a spiteful way, because if you corner them on this, eventually it 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 become it really just it becomes a spiteful thing. And I I guess when you when you're not messed up like, I guess this is why Ted Kaczynski referred to it as over socialization that they've become they're so overly socialized to the to the messaging of what of what is considered the the prestige ideology, the prestige ideas of the system we live under the pig American system that they have to internalize it on some level and it becomes a revelry about the ugliness of things or there's even a deep seated mis- misanthropy I've even seen. In some of them, where they do revel in the in the ugliness of things, and I I guess it, it, our impulse is to try and figure out because it's so alien to us why why would you revel in something like that? But I've kind of come to the conclusion over the years that I don't have the time or desire to figure out what's psychologically wrong with them. They just do it, and they do it in such numbers, and it's. It just shows what what evil is capable of. However, you want to feel words like that, good and evil. It is a revel revelry in all things disgusting, and it's 
No one has ever claimed that Arnold Schoenberg makes beautiful music. Yeah. They they may have something else to say about why like he shouldn't uh, have been uh, turned into a lampshade, but <laughs> you know, they won't no one can really in good faith claim it's beautiful music because it's deliberately not beautiful music. It's entirely discordant. I mean, the only the positive thing I've ever heard anybody say about Schoenberg's music was from Edward Abbey, and he was trying to describe what kind of music fits best with different environments. And he felt that Schoenberg perhaps best captures the weird alien and eeriness of the desert. And that's the only positive thing I've ever seen anybody write anything about Schoenberg. You mean a place that's hostile to all life? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Checks out. Um, yeah. You know, you've probably seen the in your towns and cities. You've probably seen these like horrible modern art installations that people put up, and they're just they're just deliberately ugly because they're they're that way on purpose. I mean, it's I mean, you can look at the history of Soviet art too. It's a similar concept. It's your it's a it's a power flex, and the beauty to them, if you can call it that in a warped sense, is its ugliness and that it's. It's there to represent. It's them putting a flag down and representing their warped worldview. I I live near a hideous modern art sculpture, and I pass by it sometimes depending on the route that I take my dog on when I have to take him out for a walk. And without fail, every time he sees that thing, he barks at it and refuses to go anywhere <laughs> near. Go anywhere and runs away. Like if he sees it, he runs away. It it terrifies him that much whenever he sees that thing to the point I had to stop taking that route because I just, I couldn't get him to, to walk with me anymore. He wouldn't go anywhere near that thing. I mean, we could also talk about the, the, uh, the sex stuff, the lust of the colored masses for white women. I mean, it's a similar, we're not in that case, we're no longer talking about the libtard, but we are, we are talking about libtard when we're talking about the libtard applauding, mongrelized kinky haired mulatto babies and saying how beautiful they are they don't really fucking think that no one fucking thinks that well i mean they they know it's they know that the whole thing is a biological weapon on some deep-seated level they definitely know that because the way they gloat about it they they are excited at the thought of it being imposed on somebody else which just betrays how they actually feel about it you know it's like that that, that pixie song uh I want to grow up to be, be a debaser. <laughs> I actually kind of like the Pixies, even though they actually have like their song Gigantic, uh, for example. I actually didn't realize this until recently. I was just like, I was listening to Pixies for the first time in, I don't know, decade. And I realized what that song was about. Um, I mean, debaser is about Unchian Andalu, which is. Yeah, the, it's Louis the Luis Bunel uh, and Salvador Dali collaboration where they slice open the cow eyeball with the razor. I've seen that yeah. movie more times than I care to admit, actually. <laughs> I've, I am a fan of Luis Bunel, also very French. Uh, but Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie, it's a good movie. I, uh, good. I, I agree with you guys that the, uh, the liberal mindset is really not worth. Uh, truly fathoming if you've got even slightly better things to do but uh you know at times it just uh begs the question why and i think um i've heard others describe it as the politics of envy i i, I think that that is a good description in that you know those that can do those that can't uh 
well, I would say destroy in this case, uh, because it does give you a sense of, they love this word, empowerment. Um, if you can't create the beautiful works of classical literature or architecture or music or anything like that, uh, make some a discordant, awful thing like modern art, push it onto the uh, host culture that is uh, adopted you and, uh, and foist it upwards in sort of a, a subversive yet triumphalist uh, attempt to elevate yourself. And I, I think it makes sense. Um, this is all sort of a yep. conscious explanation of, I think, what's happening subconsciously. But, you know, you see this when, like, the Victoria's Secret models are trotted out in their 400-pound underwear size. And it's like, you know, you can just see all the overweight women cheering them on because they know they'll never look like the uh, 2015 Victoria's Secret lineup before they changed everything up. And I think that's really what all this is. It's like, you know, if you and can't I, ascend to these levels, you know, you enjoy yeah. seeing the others destroy it. So, but Adam, Adam, you're not talking about the libtard, you're talking about the Jew. Um, and that's on some uh, level, I, I mean, because the libtard internalize it. Yeah, the libtard does internalize the, that narrative, though, as well, because they do. They a lot of them do embrace this culture as an as an imposition and as a punishment upon the people who refuse to, who who do who deny that that what the system we're under and the, that deny what the system we're under have, having any prestige whatsoever. They do see it at this culture as a way to punish. They've embraced that aspect of it. But, their souls and minds may be warped, but if they have white blood, when they're put onto the breeding farms, their grandchildren will be capable again of creating beautiful things. Yeah, I mean that's you can you can change. I mean, you see that all the time with the with the birth of children that people with with previously shitty opinions, many of them do. Get, they develop better opinions once they have to help. Some of them don't. Some of them double down and destroy their children in the process. Oh, but there is a reversion. I, I, I don't really care what good. breeding stock have to say. <laughs> <laughs> not not really important. I mean, they're if they've chosen their side, so that's fine. They're out. Uh, you know, spoken like but a true system controller. Children. What's that? Spoken like a true system controller, I, I've uh, I've heard the uh, the argument recently that in order to uh, either usurp or at least combat the elites, you have to think like them, and they basically treat us all like uh, like cattle. And uh, I'm I'm warming up to this notion after a year plus of trying to. Uh, well, I kind of didn't even try this this time, but I very tentatively would put out feelers to people with this mask crap and the vaccines. And you just, you feel like that everybody is just programmed by the propaganda. There's no critical thinking going on. There's no lights on in these, uh, these spheres that supposedly contain brains. And it's, um, it's really disheartening, but you know, when you sort of push past that, you start to think on a grander scale that maybe this is just how people are and if you're ever going to affect a real uh, societal level politics, you have to kind of think of everybody as a follower. And in order to get them to follow, you have to assume a position of authority and treat them like, uh, unfortunately, um, a higher order farm animal. I, I won't reduce them to 
the lowest forms, but it's, um, it's sad. I mean, you know, people of Walmart, I mean, are you going to have a, uh, you know, reason.org debate with these people? I mean, they, they're, they're compelled by the basis of instincts. Um, and if you can't capture that emotional aspect to their lives, no amount of argument and debate is going to convince anybody. This is why I'm very cynical in democracy. I mean, it's, uh, it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to have a debate. I mean, uh, you know, it's all very orchestrated what even the talking points are, uh, let alone the, the, the arguments made within them. And so everything is so controlled already. It's, um, you know, what you just said, I mean, like breeding stock. I mean, this is how the elite view us, you know, and I think they're actually viewing us as overbreeders at this point. And, and you know, that you can get into all the theories about what COVID is about, but I, I think there is an element of depopulation at, at play here. Um, and I don't know, in order to, uh, <laughs> in order to do something, I think you have to think a little bit like them, uh, because, you know, yeah, and, and I'm talking about that in the reverse, uh, breeding stock for the future of the race. Okay, good. I'm saying that, that these type, well, I won't get too specific because it's like, you know, what's the point, man? <laughs> The Nick Mason breeding farm plan is going to have to be discussed in a different episode. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll save that one. But <laughs> Welcome to Spinal Tap. <laughs> so, I will add, though, um, just on the because it's really the one of the main themes in the book. Um, I You can't talk about the libtard without talking about Christianity. And I think a lot of people want to talk about this like this is some kind of modern phenomenon of the past you know, just hundred years, but these people were fucking roaming around naked in Palestine thousands of years ago. Okay. So I think what he, the dynamic that he shows is that, I mean, who's the most, like to me, the most absurd character in the book is the one is, this is, I found very interesting is the one Catholic figure with whom he probably has the most sympathy from a religious perspective. Uh, Like the old senile, uh, what I don't know. Bit, like, he wasn't a bishop. I guess he was just a he was just a monk. He was the head of his order, right? Um, that was M- Melchior, right? Or my yeah? Because yeah, okay, because the names I get mixed up sometimes. Yeah, I'm 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 not I'm avoiding names. Not very. Uh, I, I don't speak French, uh, and I don't have any hair in my mouth. So <clears throat> the uh, he's like, so he is the one who wants to. He has his his uh, fellow monks and it's not really given any explanation why it is like he wants, he actually seems to want to stop it. He's like the one religious figure who wants to stop it. And I guess presumably because he wants to protect his Abbey uh, that is like, was this ancient Abbey that was restored. And it was like big controversy for like the polit- for the political left or whatever, because of the money that was put up for uh but he dies the most absurd death of them all, and his his end is the most like tragic comic of them all, and he's the one he's the one who wants who mutters something about stopping it. So I mean, you can make of that what you will. Uh, it's it's clear that oh. Rispal was a was a Catholic, but yeah, it's uh, the dynamic that I saw play out was that. You have on the spectrum of like libtard to fanatic, uh, the, the true believers who stuck around for the actual encounter with the black mob 
from Beyond the Stars or whatever, uh, were the true believers. Whereas the libtards, who themselves were bourgeois, um, had, you know, whatever, like, nice flats in Paris and stuff, uh, who spout the humanitarian, just secular Christian humanitarian platitudes, uh, they were the ones who had a crisis of faith, you know, to the last. Whereas it was the uh, the priest who was in the uh, Rabalian orgy, who the last he was the last white man. I mean, that, there's some heavy fucking allegory for you right there. The last white man who wasn't strangled and thrown overboard was this delusional uh, bishop, I guess, for the entire Ganges area who had gone into some form of like, I don't know, Franciscan religious ecstasy. He was the last, he was the only white man by the time the flotilla uh, reaches the shores of France. Yeah. And I remember the, I guess the, the comedy of that is that he has this vision, the, after, as he's dying of being welcomed into the, the you know, the, behind the pearly gates. And, uh, but the, the joke on him is that, and he, he, Ross Spiel doesn't really say exactly what's going on or what to make of that, but he's told to follow the fake saints that were invented earlier by other, by a different religious figure that was going towards the towards the beach, that uh, the bishop who dies on the boat is told to just follow, you know, Baptition and Podiatron, these fake saints that were uh, that were made up as they as he's welcomed into the pearly gates. You could see that as like a kind of like a shared a shared false vision, perhaps of the of you know of these fanatics. Well, and it reveals too that Saint Genevieve, uh, they they said was fake. The patron patron saint of Paris. Uh, make make of that what you will too, but that's and that's what I found interesting as well about this novel because, like, like I said, I've and I've read you know I've I've read you know some of the white the white nat the white nationalist novels of different writers and I've read reactionary works and. The Camp of the Saints almost defy, in part maybe it's because it was one of the earlier books written, but it kind of defies on some level that easy categorization because I can see the reactionary tendencies on it. And maybe just because he's so he's so dour about all of the characters, even even the heroic ones, it it really is just an indictment on the on the nation itself it avoids a lot of the things where we, you know we were talking earlier it, it avoids a lot of that a lot of the the i'm going to tell you as a as a as a writer or as a character in this not in this political novel what the politics of the situation are and these are my politics and here's what i think will happen here's what i think and here's what i would like to see happen it avoids a lot of that because it brings it back to and maybe the characters can be a little bit archetypal, but it brings it back to these characters and it asks the the question of what is this all about? It reminds me actually of something that um, that Welbeck had written about because there's this current kerfluffle going on in France over the letter from the various generals, like basically blustering that they're going to do a military coup on France if things don't, you know, if they don't get the civilization back together. 
and well it's this is the narcissistic fall of france that was on the website unheard and basically welbeck's point in that is that there's no shortage of boasting and blustering in in french culture that leads to fundamentally nothing but he asks this question at the end of it it takes two to wage war are the french going to take up arms to defend the religion they haven't had any religion for quite some time and in any case their former religion is the sort where you offer your throat to the butcher's blade would it then be a war to defend their culture their way of life their system of values what exactly are we talking about and supposing it does exist is it worth fighting for does our civilization really still have something to be proud of, you know, Welbeck's writing that in 2021. And I feel like the camp of the saints, you know, written in 1973, asked that question before anybody else did. So the other expect, I mentioned at the beginning, the other expectation I had was that the novel wouldn't be very radical, but that's far from the case. Uh, whereas in the case of, I don't know, the Turner Diaries, for example, uh, you have the cathartic, uh, racial violence against the coloreds and the Jew and the traitor, et cetera. But uh, in this book, you have the opposite. There's only a few that actually do any fighting. And it's, well, they'd rack up, you know, they rack up a couple bodies at the end. Uh, it's a doomed struggle, and there's so few of them. And that's also the point. However, the entire like moral lesson of the book in a certain sense is that you cannot maintain a superior civilization in the face of a world that is well aware that you exist uh, without inspiring terror through violence. It doesn't necessarily imply that you need, you know, to scour the world for these people or just wipe out the dark continent altogether, though. I mean, you know, there's maybe something to be said for that. Uh, the point is, though, is like as soon as you show weakness, that's the whole because the book, what it really is, it's an allegory about the death of the white man. And it just so happens that it serves also to be a very literal prophetic vision of the death of the white man in so many respects. But the the whole point is that once once the weakness is shown, um, the floodgates are open and the only way to the only way to stem it is through violence, through mass slaughter. And that's the like moral dilemma everyone has in the book is that, firstly, you have all these other countries wanting someone else to do it. Even the Russians puss out, which, you know, eh, maybe maybe not entirely believable, not because anything so much about the Russians, but uh, the USSR definitely did commit slaughters. I mean, not just of ethnic Russians, but of I would other. say that that's one of the most un like unrealistic parts of the book. Yeah, uh, is is the 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 notion that um, like he he notes that the the Amur River runs yellow and there's thousands of dead Russians everywhere and Moscow gives the order to retreat. This is I mean that's I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to build this portrait of of uh, you know the the white world is basically in, collapsing left and right, but. Uh, that that one aspect of it was strange. He doesn't really go too much into the detail of it either. But uh, you know, the Russians, the Soviets had uh, absolutely no qualms about what the Chinese were, and yeah, <laughs> they, well, uh, they they engaged with skirmishes with them all the time. I think that the 
if anyone in you know like the doomsday scenario of the 1970s would have just started dropping nukes all over the place in the event of like global population catastrophe it would have been the soviet union taking advantage of of the situation you have to kind of pretend like the soviet union isn't what it was in real life for that for that part of the story to make sense well what's funny about that as an kind of an aside as well is the is there was a, a certain insight he had as well because written in 1973 you know we're still in the midst of the cold war and a lot of people weren't really sure what kind of you know, rapprochement that the West would have with the Soviet Union. In science fiction, you get this kind of that eventually people just kind of learn to live in peace with one another with with it being very vague on how they eventually achieve that. Like you have that in like in Star Trek where eventually everyone just kind of became the United, you know, the, the Federation or what have you. But we know for a fact now that in terms of the racial demographic issue, Soviet leaders were thinking about this. There was George Kennan. This wasn't revealed until uh, the diplomat. This wasn't revealed until after he died and people got a hold of his diaries. But he recorded a meeting between the Soviet leader at the time, which I believe was Brezhnev. And I think he would have been the leader at the time of this novel meeting with Margaret Thatcher and trying to convince her that. That the Soviet Union and the West, you know, America and the UK needed to be mindful of the demographic uh, threat going on and that they're that they should work together eventually, you know, as white nations. And Thatcher was so offended by this that she walked out of the meeting. And I thought about that when I was reading the way that you have the. Uh, the Soviets also being overwhelmed. Would that have been realistic for the time? No, but you see this kind of notion that Raspael is having, where there is that there is something that unites us. Because by that time, like there, there, a lot of a lot of the Soviet Union had had been de judified on some level. You can argue what to what extent that was, but there was the sense of whiteness that was returning to the Soviet Union. And they and they were thinking about that. Yeah, that that part. You know, I mean, you can't it's hard to like sit here and say, oh, I wish he went more into this. You, you start to drift into like uh, who's the the fat creature that wrote um, the Game of Thrones novel. Where he explores <laughs> every Martin. single political like possibility of everything. Yeah. You don't want to do that because it takes away from what the the storytelling subject is, which is the the, the fatalism of the white world. But that aspect of it is is odd and it might be the only aspect that when you look to today is sort of off is what happens to the russians and you know what what is the ultimate fate of the russian people in in this sort of global population bomb mongrelized yeah but it 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 it's sort it's odd that he sort of saw the the soviets uh, as being you know infected with the fatalism of of, uh, of you know the the post Christian West um, in the 1970s when it was most apparent. I, I think that was another aspect to it. The mid 70s were god awful. Like it was like, it was a terrible decade for the whole world. Basically, everyone was miserable. You know, like the social norms were fraying in real time. Everyone's economies was in the dump, and I could un I can understand what motivated a lot of the I think the the depressing nature of the work. And maybe 
from his perspective at the time, he must have thought, well, if, if this, this sort of um, this endemic plagues us, it must plague our, our cousins to the to the east just the same. You know, it's it's all rotten underneath. I think that that was maybe I think that I understand what he was trying to do. But that is like the only aspect of the novel that sort of feels uh, under explored. But then again, you don't yeah, always it, want to explore. It was a small part. Yeah, it was definitely a small part. Um, I would also I would call it the neo Christian rather than post Christian West, but that's we could go on about that for a while. You can uh, also yeah. there's there's another aspect of it too, in that it's being written from this point of view of someone who's like hearing news reports, right? Like hearing random news reports or people are like relaying firsthand information, which is part of the storytelling. So in this alternate world, it could have been like someone heard over the news that there was a giant battle in the Amur River and the, the Russians pulled back. But, you know, it could have actually been something totally different. That's part of what's great about the, the, the novel overall is you're, you're getting glimpses of what's going on. Um, you're not really getting, like I said at the beginning, like a complete, you know, epic history of uh, of World War Three or you know the, the you know uh, you know World War Horde or or whatever. We don't even know much about America. Other That's than also true. New York City shows doomed. up, but we don't really know. And like, there's a there's a hint about Atlanta that there's going to be like race riots in Atlanta, but you don't really know what the fate of North America is in this story, what happens to uh, Canada and the United States? Well, the, and the New York thing also shows the big, the big miss there with the, with the, the entire miss of the, of the small hat. I mean, it's like, the, cause the, the whole, the whole, like the bit we get is like, we have one American character who's somebody important and doesn't have a Jewish name and he's living on, you know, the upper floor of some skyscraper and like slowly, the Negroes are like making their way up and he's just like waiting for his doom. And he like calls the mayor of New York, the, you know, the, the pseudo Bloomberg, I guess <laughs> the white Bloomberg. I don't know. And he's like playing with little nigglets on his lap who have like invaded his, his invaded his apartment. Uh, and he's like playing with a gun with them. It's, it's kind of weird saying actually, but but yeah, we don't really know, and might be because Espal didn't know that much about America. I don't know. I mean, he basically what we do know is that he says, uh, like, basically the American cities are just total shitholes, which was accurate in the 1970s. I mean, this is yeah, before accurate the, today. The, the, well, it's it's accurate today, but in the 1970s, it was particularly uh, sort of on the nose how bad. Uh, New York City was. I think New York City cops referred to those days as the Fort Apache days or something like that, where it was just insane levels of violence and, you know, kind of running, gunning battles throughout the street every day. And half the city was depopulated. And it was just sort of a, a miserable time. And again, I yeah, think that, must, bring... that might have influenced the writing a little bit is like he's looking around the world and he's seeing, okay, the, you know, the, the, the pinnacle regions of civilization on the world today, you know, the the interior heartland of France, the coast of the Mediterranean, the east coast of the United States, parts of Russia, like, you know, they're inundated with uh, the sort of the third world slime and they're and they're sort of collapsing. Their economies are imploding and the people don't know what to do anymore. And 
I can understand what is kind of motivating the the writing here. Yeah, and on the subject, well, so Borzo made a point earlier. Uh, I forget exactly what he said, but what I was going to say to respond to it I was comparing it to other works of other racial fiction. Uh, it is, I would say, a novel first. I think that that's really the best yeah. that it has. It's a novel before it's a work of polemics. Um, you know, he doesn't write himself in as some like great savior of the Aryan race or something like that. Uh, there's no like glorious leader who is clearly a stand-in, or there's certainly no like uh, other currently alive people who are obviously written into the book. Uh, you know, you see that a lot. Sometimes they even uh, use proper names. But <laughs> that being said, uh, the main comparison I would draw is just between the European and the American experience. I mean, obviously, we are Americans. And I think that you see a... I mean, Algeria comes up a lot, and it's obvious that... I mean, this is the great tragedy. It's, you know, it's not like it's just the Jew poisoning the well. You have a lot going on that took place in the 20th century. I mean, everyone knows the story, but it's a really lethal mix where you have the way that colonialism ended because what's happened is that these colored people, they get a taste of a superior life as of what it looks like, what it might look like and what they imagine it to be of the white man and his paradise. Uh, they don't understand where it comes from because they don't have it within them to create it. And so they have a taste for it next. And this is the point that Spangler made uh, is that they have now they have the, the Pandora's box of technology has been opened to the colored world. They have the ability to, I mean, where, how do the fuck do they get to France? Well, they get there on an old, on two old British ships, right? So they have the technology, they have a taste, and then they have the resentment, you know, the, one of the, the main, uh, the main antagonist, uh, his racial, uh, animus comes from the fact that, his grandmother was a Negro slave girl uh, put into a, a French officer's brothel or whatever. Uh, so you have this, like, this is the situation that as soon as you show weakness, you're fucked. You know, the whole c colored world comes back in. Well, I think you brought this up on, I can't remember the show we did. This, this must have been two, three years ago. Um, I think we were talking about sort of the end of uh, the end of World War II and the beginning of the decolonialism movement, decolonization, and sort of, you made a comment, Nick. Um, they, you know, they smelled blood in the water, and it definitely has that sort of feeling. This book does, where you know, World War II sort of is the final uh, crescendo moment for Europe. I mean, it's just sort of over, and. It goes in line with like you kind know, of what uh, Stoddard and people like that were writing about Burnham to to an extent where there's clearly this this uh, this sense of blood in the water, and the world kind of woke up to the fact that uh, the Europeans uh, they're they're finished <laughs> they they just they just you know commenced with a massive internal war and they they wiped each other out. And there's there's you know there's nothing left to really hold on to the reins of the the outward facing empire, and there's probably not even enough left to really hold on to preserving uh, the internal borders. And that's 
I mean, to, I mean, to quote Selene, Western civilization died at Stalingrad, but mm-hmm. the the Algeria experience, if you want, if you want to kind of speculate as to like how he was able to hit it so so dead on, I mean, Algeria, I mean, Venner was pretty uh, predictive of this too, not in fiction, but he was he was definitely. I mean, Venner. Shit, Venner could be a character in the novel, actually. Yeah, actually, I was. I thought about him a lot as well. I mean, you're talking about Algeria. I mean, the Algerian experience has informed post World War II French far right politics, even to this day. Venner was a veteran of the Algeria of, of the Algerian War. He, I, I can't remember if he was involved in the plot against De Gaulle, but he also had, you know, he committed yeah, he, suicide. He, he in like faked his age to uh, be able to yeah. get in. Um, yeah, he was a teenager, and and they have a yeah. similar like that experience is exactly that. It's like they they lost the will, and and I'll I'm gonna take a shot. I, I admire uh, Venner quite a bit, uh, Same. and I I enjoyed this novel. This is my only exposure to Respile, but I, I will make the point. I'd be remiss if I didn't. It is ironic with these men, uh, you know, being like these ardent French nationalists who saw the occupation of. France under Vichy to be, you know, this great tragedy, and they're willing to to fight against this. You know, I mean, it wasn't a lot; he wasn't old enough. But that's there's kind of some references, some little shots at uh, the Third Reich being made, and it's interesting that they're willing to kill other white men happily, but as soon as it comes to the teeming masses of shit, uh, their trigger fingers turn to spaghetti. I mean that of Venner himself, but I mean the French, the Frenchman, the French, the French right, who is sort of a stand-in for. And unfortunately, this was something that was a long time making within French culture. Kind of got it started in the French Third Republic because when they when they lost in a humiliating way to the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War, most. Uh, French right-wingers at the time just wanted Alsace and Lorraine back. They wanted revenge against the Germans for that. And then you had the what were called the opportunist Republicans who made their rise through this period who convinced the French right that, no, the only way we're ever going to be able to defeat the Germans is if we expand – in, you know, expand our empire and we need to like we need to and we need demographically more numbers, which means we have to incorporate all these dark people into this and then putting the idea in. The, I mean, the person who was in charge of stationing Senegalese soldiers in the Rhineland after World War One, when the Germans were defeated, was uh, man was a, was a uh, general by the name of Mangan who had been from Lorraine. He lost his home when he was four years old to the Germans and he, they put the poison into his head that no, well, in order to get our revenge on for this, we need to populate these lands, you know, like uh, occupy these lands with blacks as a, as a humiliating way and to mongrelize these people and teach them a lesson. And unfortunately that was a story that was pushed hard in the French for, for many decades is like, no, let's use Imperial empire Let's be civic imperialist, and we're going to impose our will on these other European white men. The French were the first to break the gentleman's agreement in Europe that you do not station imperial subjects on European soil. You can fight, you yeah, know, you can have the subjects fight one a, another, but you don't bring them home. Which is also a point out of Spangler, because when you when you put them in arms under a political purpose. On your native soil, you've just you politicized what was previously just 
you know, bipeds that could hold rifles. You've, you've, th- this is again the blowback of colonialism. And it's worth noting that the British, to Borzois' point, did the same. I mean, not, not to the extent that the French did and not as, I think, perniciously, but the British did uh, bring in a considerable amount of the empire to fight World War One. Yeah, yeah, they did. Especially, you know, within, I think, the first eight months of deployment in France, they, the, you can read any decent history of World War One will make this point that within, I think, eight to 12 months, all of the crack British troops uh, were dead. They were gone. And well, the they Sikhs had, they were had some of the most loyal subjects of yeah. the empire. Yeah. And the Sikhs, that's another symbolic thing that happens in the beginning of the novel. Yes. Is the final stand <laughs> in the third world uh, is the Belgian consulate, the lone white man, and his Sikh. The Sikh, of course, eventually deserts, but hey, give him some credit. He hangs in there for a second because he was the best of the, the most loyal of the, the colored the colored peoples and the they were, you know, they're relatively high quality people compared to you know, the masses from southern India. Um, you know, warrior culture. There's a lot to admire about them, and they should be admired in their own country. But the uh, point I was going to make was drawing the comparison between Europe and America. And the, I mean, the interethnic chauvinism isn't, you don't see it as a major part, but it is a subtext insofar as it's pretty obvious throughout the novel that Europe is unwilling to unite to face face this problem and they all want to shuffle it off onto each other and no one wants to see it as a problem for the white world as a whole and Rispal is clearly a very traditional man in the sense that his his idea of white civilization is very specific it's the this French village and that's the, the symbolic ending of it and you see a similar thing with other you know like the idea of like the village green in merry old England as that's western civilization uh, and I think that this is something that one, the only thing really I think that Europeans have to learn from Americans in a certain sense that we have to learn from each other. But I think that they can come to appreciate that, uh, you know, soil, it, it doesn't it's not that important. I mean, these are transitory things like, you know, the, the white race is spread out over the world and called all kinds of new places home and then built their own traditions to the point where they start to be attached to some soil in some far flung, you know, like in the dark continent or something that, you know, they've been there for a while, but in the grand scheme of things, it's only a couple hundred years. I mean, we were always in, we are, we started as, as nomads, warrior horsemen essentially is where the the race spread. And Americans, uh, despite being dumb apes, uh, they at least prove the point that, you know, in little in little niches, uh, it can pop up again, like a, the possibility of a future. But Americans definitely can stand to learn from Europeans an appreciation of history and tradition. That that much is is for sure. Uh, but it is, I, I mean, it's actually, I think the only fiction, uh, racialist European fiction I've ever read. Hey, I, I, by the way, if anyone has any recommendations along that line, um, you know, let us know. I'm I'm actually curious. I know that it's much harder, though, in Europe to write, uh, especially these days. It's a lot harder to write and get published. Well, speaking of which, what happened to the author? I assume he's passed by now, but uh, what were his he died last, last year. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. Not only did he die recently. last year, he died uh, this month last year in June. Wow. What what were his final uh, thoughts and observations? He was unrepentant, basically, as I re- as I understand about about the novel. Although it was He's fucking vindicated. Of, yeah, I, I mean the. <laughs> He got into now because you have to it, the thing to keep in mind. You have to remember with France as well is you have to be very careful about what you say and how it can be perceived because you can get into a lot of legal trouble for it. So he he, he and that's one of the reasons why the the novel can sometimes have that uh, American Renaissance or reactionary feel to it. And he was on a number of occasions very adamant that he wasn't a racist that this is he was doing like the proud boy thing of that this is about western civilization saving western civilization and that's the the french have a different relationship in terms of their of of their state you know their internal dialogue on on the you know what to do about the demographic crisis again saying you know as i said before you're not allowed to publish the numbers on this so it's what his actual feelings were at what his actual opinion were it, you kind of might have to read between the lines a little bit i would say though he was comp- not only was he vindicated he was unrepentant to the end he never really he, i mean he was also he paid the price many times for saying the truth he was he was objectively a great writer and he was denied many of the uh uh he was denied several times the uh, like, uh, for example, he was a, in a, a candidate for the French Academy, couldn't get the votes for it. And it was obvious why he couldn't. He was sued by the International League Against Racism and Anti-Semitism. Uh, now, he managed to survive a lot of this stuff because of how he, you know, of his reputation and his ability to kind of be very careful about what he said. But, you know, he he should have been hailed the literary hero in his country and. He all he's known for now is this controversial novel. Yeah, he was given interviews um, as recently as a few years ago, and in on French television, uh, I think he spoke to one or two German reporters. Um, he never really. You know, had any regrets? He never said anything to the effect of "I went too far." Or, I don't necessarily believe this anymore. You know, he, I, I think not just that he was vindicated. I think that even if he hadn't been vindicated, he probably would have thought, "Well, it was a a future worth entertaining, at least, or worth considering." Um, you don't find a lot of people like him, and you know, in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Ernst Younger. Uh, another yeah. unrepe- another unrepentant man to his very end who did not care what you thought of him. Absolutely did not care what you had to say about him. Um, he didn't care what anyone had to say about him. He was, you know, on many occasions in the life of Ernst Young was willing to die for what he had written and what he what he you know wanted to talk about. Um, you, you mean he was an admirable and heroic man who happened to be around for the one chance the white race had to take the 20th century back, and he spurned it because he had his own little niche view about what Western civilization was. Uh, I, guess, I mean, I guess if you want to frame it that way, but I mean in the sense that Ernst Younger never apologized for his view of World War One or you know his view of, of his of 
the adventures he went on and, and all of that. He, he, he had been asked many times to uh, make apologies for it or lament for the violence of his uh, of his time, and he never did. Yeah. Well, and, and, that, and that's what I, that's what I mean is that you do. There was this generation of men. They were all born around the same time too. I guess the the last generation of uh, of honorable men in Europe, um, and they none of them were were repentant. Ian Smith, Enoch Powell, uh, John Raspall. Ernst Younger, they were none of them were ever repentant. None of them ever sort of uh, backed down in the face of, uh, of criticism. Yeah, there. I mean, you still had people willing to commit war crimes, and now I guess there are still people willing to commit war crimes. Uh, but it's you know against like the Serbs or, or something like, you know, <laughs> or it's the like, Serbs against the Croats or, <laughs> yeah. or Bosniaks. Uh, to the Borzai's mentioned the reactionaries, and I. I since I opened uh, referencing, I mean, this isn't a, I'm not taking a shot specifically about Jared Taylor, but I'll just say like, I read him uh, once talk. He wrote a review, by the way, of the novel and it is good. It's a good review. Um, but I did write, read him say something about like, th those people are very good at writing very eloquently uh, up until it comes to a solution. And like Jared Taylor said something effective, like he was like, pro-democracy or something like this it's just like okay guy come on you're you're a smart guy you know better than that and it's this uh you see a lot of the reactionary types want to show uh put forward ideas about like some kind of like elite capture or something where they like and uh also the whole like oh uh, this can all be done without violence and much to my surprise, the book is a repudiation, actually, of both of those positions. That's uh, it, and that's what I found. First, and that's what I was trying to get at as well. Was like where it seemed reactionary, but it, there's something very radical about it as well. well. Well, yeah, he demonstrates that first of all, the uh, you have the elite uh, who know the score and just want someone else. They sure they want someone else to solve for them, but they're not gonna even the even the president who seems, you know, like he's he's very much struggling because he has the interests on some level of his nation at heart, but, uh, his, just, his balls aren't there and he pusses out, uh, when it comes to his final speech, he, he just, he pusses out. And this idea, there's this kind of idea that's floated around for a long time. I don't know why people seem to think this, but that just like people don't know the score, uh, they know the score. They're just, uh, cowards and traitors. That's uh, not, not, not a complicated thing. As to the other point regarding violence, I mean, the whole picture of the book points is that, yeah, this can only be solved through violence. And not only that, extreme violence and extreme violence against ostensibly non-combatants. Uh, that's the moral dilemma throughout the book. And that's what these people are unwilling to do. I mean, even one of the more hardened guys, he's like machine gunning, machine guns, 10 of these monsters, and then he blows his own head off. You know, it's a failure of will. And that back to the point about the and why I think he was able to be so prophetic was the, the French experience of the of the end of colonialism and the, the losing of the will to fight. Uh, he even mentions like French troops firing on uh, French Algerians, which uh, I actually did not know happened. I'm going to maybe I'll do uh, maybe I'll, we'll do an Algeria, some Algeria content in the future, because uh, I, I guess I can learn more about the, the grim details of that. But 
as I mentioned, the the toxic brew of the fall of colonialism, the problem that the tragedy of Europe and what really spells doom is that that situation where the white man is shows, showing weakness is exactly the time, and this is something that Yaki's talked wrote about. I mean, this was basically the point of his book, Imperium. I mean, at least the most salient point is that now that is a time more than ever where basically the only solution is is total imperialism and total self-assuredness and total dedication to the race outside of all other concerns. Indeed. I don't really have anything else to add. Uh, yeah, any war crimes you want to commit, Borzoi? <laughs> well, what I found uh, what I found interesting is, I guess, on the, on the topic of war crimes in in the novel, is how is the names they apply when they're committing war crimes at the end towards the the, the people that they're killing. I mean. The uh, the whites that the that they're also killing. Oh, they go from they, being uh, nigger lovers to fellow travelers. Fellow, yeah, which is is interesting. How because you you would think almost intuitively you, you would think intuitively that it would have to be the other way around, but it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it because the the fellow traveler that's that's a it's a very almost like um, it, it's political clinical language. It, it removes their sense of whiteness and humanity from them. They're just NPCs, basically. And he says, or at least the colonel that's explaining it, like very simple, uh, uh, very simple colonel. Oh, no, it's the uh, nasty business the colonel replied. But what's the difference between the two? Very simple, colonel. Nigger lovers are what they start out as. They wind up as fellow travelers later. When there's no more white left in them at all. Sort of the final stage, I guess. So long as we're going to kill them, I figure at least we should call them what they are. Anyhow, we picked off nine of them today, all with one round. Not to mention the 42 Ganges bastards. The rest of them grabbed up the wounded and beat it. Dehumanize yourself and face to bloodshed. Yeah. 